Hello and welcome to JG Ministries Bible Study, where we study God's Word. I'm Jeffrey, ordained minister and chaplain at JG Ministries, and I'm glad you joined us today. Our study is in the ninth chapter of the book of Luke, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to that chapter, and we'll continue with verse 37. Let's get into it. Last time, we saw the transfiguration of Jesus, and this time, we're going to see Jesus heal a boy that has an evil spirit, and we'll also see the true greatness of the kingdom of God. So let's go ahead and go to our Bibles and jump right in to verse 37. Now it happened on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. Behold, a spirit sees him, and he suddenly cries out, it falls to the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. So here we have a hint of a boy with an evil spirit. It's a and he gets healed by Jesus. This healing is another significant example of the power of God over demons. It also implies Jesus' strong censure of the disciples for not performing the exorcism. And in verses 37 to 39, I'm going to look at those together. From the Mount of Glory, we have Jesus and the disciples. They return the next day to the Valley of Human Need. The descent of Jesus and the disciples from mountain meant a descent into the earthly world of illness, evil, and unbelief. Life has its moments of spiritual exaltation, but God balances them with the daily round of toil and expenditure. And note how forward the people were to receive Christ at his return to them. Even though it had only been a little while, there's a large crowd that gathered around a demon-possessed boy. And out from this multitude of people, this crowd of people that met Jesus, came a distraught father for Jesus to help his demon-possessed son. It was his only son, and therefore this son was his heart's delight. What an unspeakable sorrow then it is for that father to see his boy seized with demonic convulsions. The physical manifestations were similar to those of epilepsy, and the boy experienced continual debilitating oppression. These fits came on without warning, and the lad would cry out and then foam at the mouth. And only after a struggle would the demon depart, and it would leave this boy bruised. And in verse 40, while three of the disciples were witnessing the transfiguration, the others, the other disciples were helpless in the face of the demonic power. The distraught father had 
previously gone to the disciples for help, but they were powerless. They, why were these disciples unable to help the boy? Perhaps they had become professional in their ministry. Perhaps they thought they could count on a spirit-filled ministry without constant spiritual exercise. Perhaps they were taking things too much for granted. Maybe they distrusted the power that they were given, or maybe they didn't exert themselves in prayers as they should. In verse 41, but at any rate, the Lord Jesus was grieved by this entire spectacle. And without naming anyone in particular, Jesus said, O faithless and perverse generation. Now, this may have us disciples. It could have been to the people. Could have been to the father, or maybe it was a combination of all of them. They were all so helpless in the face of human need, in spite of the fact that they could draw on Jesus's infinite resources of power. How long would Jesus have to be with them and put up with them? Then Jesus says to the father, bring your son here. And in verses 42 to 44, we see that as the lad was still coming to Jesus, again, he was seized by the demon and thrown to the ground violently. But Jesus was not overawed by this display of power of this evil spirit. It was the unbelief of men that hindered Jesus rather than the power of demonism. And Jesus rebuked the spirit and cast it out. He cast out the unclean spirit. He healed the child and then gave the child back to his father. And the people, they're all amazed. They recognized that God had worked a miracle. They saw in the miracle a display of the majesty of God. The disciples might be inclined to think that their master would continue to perform miracles until at last the whole nation would acclaim Jesus as king. But to disabuse their minds of such a notion, the Lord again reminded them, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of men, and that is to be killed. So in verse 45, why did they not understand this prediction? Well, simply because they lapsed back into thinking of the Messiah as a popular hero, if you will. His death would mean defeat for the cause according to their thinking. Their own hopes were so strong that they were unable to entertain any contrary view. It was not God who concealed the truth from them, but their own determined refusal to believe. They were even afraid to ask for clarification, almost as if they were afraid to have their fears confirmed. This repetition of the prediction of Jesus might be considered as a separate section, Luke connected it closely with the preceding incident by the marveling of the crowd. The Passion prediction serves to emphasize that Jesus' ultimate purpose went beyond such miracles. This time, Jesus includes a reference to his betrayal. And the people, however, failed to understand and they were not granted understanding of the meaning of Jesus' words. Now, Luke does not 
imply, however, that they had asked Jesus for help in understanding his word. If they had, they might have been given. And now we're going to see the true greatness in the kingdom, the two cases of rivalry. So let's go back to our scripture here of who is the greatest with verses 46 to 48. Then a dispute arose around them as to which of them would be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him and said to them, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives me. For he who is least among you all will be great. Now let's take a look at those three verses here before we continue. In verse 46, the disciples not only expected the glorious kingdom to be ushered in shortly, but they also aspired to positions of greatness in the kingdom. Already, they are arguing among themselves as to who would be the greatest. What is so sad about this incident is that it happened right after these disciples experienced the transformation. And furthermore, it was in response to Jesus' Jesus's announcement of his approaching crucifixion. And worse yet, they repeated the performance when they got to Capernaum and again as they heard or as they neared his crucifixion. What infinite patience Jesus had. And this passage naturally follows the preceding two verses. The disciples did not understand Jesus's role as the suffering servant and so could not grasp his implications for them as his disciples. They were still thinking of the Messiah only in terms of triumph, assuming quite naturally that their position was important. The issue was not whether there would be rank in the kingdom, but the nature and the qualifications of such rank. And with verses 47 to 48 to finish this small section, knowing the question that was agitating them, Jesus brought a little child beside him and explained that anyone who received a little child in his name received him. At first glance, this does not seem to have any connection with the question, but though not obvious, the connection seems to be this. True greatness is seen in loving care for the little ones, for those who are helpless, for those whom the world passes by. Thus, when Jesus said that the least among of you all will be great, he was referring to the one who humbled himself to associate with believers who are not, who are nondescript, if you will, who are insignificant and even despised. In the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verse 4, the Lord said that the greatest is the one who humbles himself like a child. And here in Luke, it is a matter of identifying oneself with the lowliest among God's children. In both cases, it involves taking a place of humility as the Savior himself did. And Jesus' reference to the little child refers to receiving for the sake of Christ a person who has no status. And this is con consistent with Jesus and Luke's concern for neglected people. Meaning then is that instead of seeking status for ourselves out of pride as an associate of the Messiah, 
we Christians should, as Jesus did, identify ourselves with those that have no status at all, welcoming them to join us in the kingdom. By ministering to a child, one ministers without realizing it to Christ himself. And so now let's turn back to our scripture and let's look at the section where the Son of Man forbids sectarianism. 49.50, now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. So in verse 49, we have the next episode that reveals the apostles' attitude of rivalry. The issue is not orthodoxy, but association. This incident seems to illustrate the behavior which the Lord had just told the disciples to avoid. They had found some casting out Jesus' name. And the man referred to here had actually been driving out demons through Jesus' name. They forbade him for no better reason than he was not one of their followers. In other words, they had refused to receive a child of the Lord in his name. They were a sectarian, a member of a sect, and they were narrow. They should have been glad that the demon had been cast out of the man. They should never be jealous of any man or group that might cast out more demons than they did. But then every disciple has to guard against this desire for for a monopoly of spiritual power and prestige. And leading us into verse 50, this verse is proverbial in form. The man was not against Jesus. Apparently, he had not yet joined the group of Jesus' disciples, but maybe he was probably on the way to joining. He should be welcomed rather than repulsed. And Jesus said to him, or Jesus said, do not forbid him for he who is not against us is on our side. As far as the person and the work of Christ are concerned, there can be no neutrality. If men are for Christ, then they are against him. But when it comes to Christian service, earnest Christians need to remember that when outsiders do anything in Christ's name, it must be, on the whole, forward for Jesus' cause. The Master's reply contained a broad and far-reaching truth. No earthly society, however holy, would be able exclusively to claim the divine powers inseparably connected with the true and faithful use of his name. And to note, we have another rebuke of John, this time for wanting to monopolize working miracles. And a third one immediately after that for anger that we will see in the upcoming verses of 52 and 56, we will see three rebukes in a row. And that's going to finish that small section. Now, next time when we meet, we'll see the increasing oppositions to the Son of Man. We will see the teachings and travels towards Jerusalem. And Samaria rejects the Son of God. But that'll be for next time when we see the new direction in Jesus' ministry. Until then, God bless each and every one of you, and keep living Christian strong.